Make your way to Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 is where we're going to be picking it up, where we left off last week. And last week, we were looking at um, the supremacy of Christ in relation to God, primarily in relation to God. We looked at, obviously, in relation to creation as well, relation to the church, but primarily just that connection to God, the supremacy of Christ. Well, today, we continue on uh, and we look now at the supremacy of Christ in relation to you. The supremacy of Christ in relation to you. Notice Paul's first words there in verse 21, the first two words, and you. Notice the direction now and the, the change of focus that Paul's been looking and highlighting Jesus Christ, the message we looked at last week, but now he wants to direct this to you and you. Now we know Paul's speaking specifically to the church at Colossus, the people that are there, but in a more general way, we understand that he's addressing the condition of humanity by which when I look out at this room, I see that the majority of you are a part of that humanity. Okay, it's not flying with you. All right, but let's get in this here. Let's see what Paul has to say for us here. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So it's important that we recognize clearly that we were all those that were alienated from God at one point. Now that word doesn't imply, you know, some extraterrestrial being alien and that kind of thing. It's speaking of how we were separated from God. That's what the word means. You were separated from God. It doesn't, it, it, it's implying our status before Jesus Christ. This is the state that all of us were in before we put our faith in Jesus, that we were separated from God. And we were separated from God because of our sins. Isaiah 59 verse two says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And not only were we separated, which some of us might kind of think that was just a position that we were relegated to beyond our control. We had nothing to do with that. That wasn't really our fault. That was just what we were uh, left with. You know, we were separated from God. But here's what Paul is identifying for us here that you were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works see here's something that we oftentimes don't like to think about ourselves that we were capable of evil or wicked works uh futile thinking in our mind evil actions wicked actions we think no no that's that's not me that's not me that's that must be those that were the real heathen or pagan people, the real worldly sinful people, but that's, that's not the category that I was in. We like to think of ourselves much better and uh, uh, think of our condition as you know, much cleaner than it was. But here's the reality. Nobody, nobody comes out of the womb quoting scripture or singing Amazing Grace, right? We like to think sometimes, oh, I was just born a Christian. I, I had, you know, Christian parents and Christian grandparents. There's a long line in my family, so here I am. I just popped out of the womb, and I was just like total Mr. Christian, ready to go, ready to serve the Lord. That was my state. We like to sometimes think of ourselves in that way, but it's never been that case. You see, nobody had to learn how to be wicked, Nobody had to learn how to sin. This stuff came very naturally for us, didn't it? 
This is something that was just inherited in that line of humanity. And we all needed grace because we were guilty before God. You and I were wicked people. Everybody feeling good right about now? Y'all really? No, there's no amens with that. I, know, I understand that. This, this is not wonderful news. I get it. But it's important news to hear because it makes the next part that we hear that much more wonderful. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 21. Yet now he has reconciled. Thank you, Lord, indeed. Yet now he's reconciled all those that were wicked, that were enemies to the Lord, that were separated from God because of sin. Yet now, all of you, he has reconciled. This ministry of reconciliation is such a powerful and wonderful thing for us. Lewis says this, reconciliation in the case of God and man is twofold. A holy God is reconciled in that justice has been satisfied at the cross and sinful man is reconciled in that. And in the case of the believing sinner, his attitude of enmity towards God is changed to one of friendship. Unger continues on that thought and he says that reconciliation is to change from one condition to another so as to remove all enmity and leave no impediment to unity and peace. You see, we have, through the reconciliating work of Jesus Christ, we've been changed from one condition to another where we were once enemies of God to now being called friends of God, saved, children of God, to where everything that once maybe got in the way and divided us from the Lord, everything that cut us off from his grace and his peace has now been removed. We've been reconciled. That's the good news for us. But we have to understand the bad news. We have to understand our condition before so we appreciate all the more and go, I'm not right with God because I'm so good. I'm right with God because Jesus has done that when I least deserved it. That's the good news for us here today. That's the glorious reality now for those who have put their trust in Jesus. What we once were has been exchanged for something far better and beneficial. We gave up our wickedness and rebellion hopefully. We gave it up, and then we received Jesus's righteousness to where we can now become, come, where we can come before God Almighty in peace and confidence and enjoy a relationship with Him. It doesn't get any better for us here, my friends. Un well, until we're with Him in heaven, that's going to get even better, but here's the reality and the truth for us is that we've been reconciled. Do we understand the greatness of that work? And not only that, but now we've been called to the ministry of reconciliation. Paul points that out for us in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he talks about us becoming a, a new creation. All things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. He says that we become a new creation, but we become a new creation for a purpose. And he says in verse uh, 18 of 2 Corinthians 5, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us now the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to him, to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, and so God, we're pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
That's the ministry we've been given now because we've been reconciled. We now have the word of reconciliation. We now have the good news to pass on to other people to say, hey, you might be separated from God. You might be experiencing hopelessness right now, but you can have hope in him. You can be right with him. You can have a righteous standing before God in and through Jesus Christ who reconciles us. And I pray today that you see the incredible gift of being reconciled to God, but also pray you, you recognize the extreme blessing of being a minister of reconciliation, that you encourage people around you, how they can be right with God. We showed up at the hotel in Spokane and we're getting served by this young man and he was just super nice, so awesome. And uh, we went back to room and we're like, I wonder if that guy's a Christian. I think that guy's a Christian. So I went back down in the lobby and I said, hey, how you doing? I just wanna thank you for just doing a good job. Are you, are you a Christian by chance? And he swore at me and said, why, of course I'm not. A, no, he didn't say that, but he said he's a former, um, a, a former Mormon, not, not living for the Lord all right now. And then another guy was working there and he starts kind of chiming me and he's not a believer, but it just gave us an opportunity to sit there and share with them the, the good news and how they can be right with God. That's not through our, our works or righteousness ourselves. It's through Jesus Christ, we're gonna trust him. And we just get to share with people, you know, this word of reconciliation, how they can be right with God. What a blessing. There's no greater blessing, you know, than just being able to pass on this good news that we've received, but now to share that with other people. And notice this here, this reconciliation was a costly work. It cost Jesus his life. He laid it down in the most grueling manner. See, the Romans devised crucifixion to be the death penalty that would inflict the most punishment, pain, and torture on a person. And even before they got to the cross, they would take a person and begin to flog them. And, and they would cause the person to yell out their crimes, to confess their crimes. And as they would confess their crimes, they would release that, that beating a little bit and pull back a little bit more with this whip that was this cat of nine tails that would just grip onto the flesh and just begin to shred the flesh. But here's Jesus receiving that and he had no crime to confess. He remained silent in this. And he endured that for us and then he went to the cross. And he died a humiliating, painful death for you and me. And, and Paul, you see, is being very purposeful in explaining it this way, as he does in verse 22, that Jesus was uh, he reconciled in the body of his flesh. See, Paul's being very purposeful in this because remember what's going on in the church at Colossus. There's a, a group of false teachers coming in that are beginning to twist the gospel around. They're beginning to... to you know, bring a heretical teaching that later led to Gnosticism, right? This kind of people that were in the know, they thought. So here's what they said. This group came in and said, all matter is evil. So God couldn't have created the world. So Paul in this chapter is really looking to masterfully and very purposefully uh, bring about a counter to these claims that these people were we're making. And he's looking to refute these claims in a very systematic and, and correcting way here of these views. So like they said, God couldn't create the world. He made all these different emanations, thousands of these emanations that got so far down the line and away from God that there was one that was able to create the world, that emanation itself being evil. So Paul comes in and he says, like we saw last week in verse 16, what? For by him, all things are created that are in heaven and that are on earth. He declares that Jesus is the creator of all, that Jesus is not just another emanation, 
one in the line that you need to kind of pass through through secret knowledge to get right with God. He says Jesus is very God himself and he's the creator of all. At the end of verse 16, all things are created through him and for him. All things are created through him and for him. So Paul refutes that claim. But then another claim of this heretical group was that, well, if Jesus was truly God or if he was, you know, anyway close to God, he couldn't have come in a, in a fleshy body because to take on flesh was to take on matter and that would be evil. It would be corrupting him. So Jesus, they said, only came as this phantom or ghost and he wasn't fully man and he wasn't fully God. But then what does Paul say here? We're reconciled through Christ and it's in the body of his flesh. So Paul, again, very systematically correcting these various views that were propagating the church. And so Paul's beginning to clarify that Jesus came as one of us. He identified with us in our humanity. He took on flesh. Think about that sacrifice that Jesus made just in leaving heaven, leaving the glories of God to come into this world and be clothed in humanity like you and I. But he came and did that because he came to do a work for us that we couldn't do ourselves. Again, it was our sin that separated from us from God. And how is, what's the wages of sin? Death. The cost of that sin is death. So in order for that sin to be remedied, a death had to be committed. Jesus came and he laid himself down on our behalf. He was that sacrifice for your sin and my sin. And he remedied sin through his sacrifice on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God. So that we could be right with God. We couldn't do that for ourselves. Only Jesus could. And he needed a body for that to happen. He came as fully God yet fully man, took our place. He died a death so that we wouldn't have to. And his death then resulted in greater life. It resulted in freedom and salvation. But understand something, this freedom now is not for us just to go ahead and live as we want and do what we want. Sometimes people think, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm right with God, so now I can just go ahead and just live my life the way I want. God will forgive all. No, this freedom was not for us to live as we wanted. It was so that we could live holy, blameless, and above reproach, as Paul says there at the end of verse 22. Sadly, a lot of people think being free to do what they want is the way that they're going to really enjoy life and be happy. Sometimes people think, I, I don't want to give my life to the Lord in fullness. I want to I retain some of my own freedom. You know, I'll give part of my life to the Lord in that kind of religious duty, but I want to have some of my freedom so that I could, you know, enjoy life. And they hold back. But the way to truly be satisfied and happy in life is not by doing what you want, but it's doing God's will. And his will is what? To present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. To be holy, sometimes we think, oh man, holy, like, can I wait till I'm in heaven to be holy? Like, can I, can I do it then? Because being holy in this world sounds like it's gonna be very boring or, or a little bit depressing. But you know something, guys? Holiness is what leads to happiness. Holiness leads to happiness. It's not the other way around. Holiness doesn't keep you from being happy. Holiness leads to happiness because it's living for God and living his way. The very word holy means to be set apart, set apart from 
sin and this world and set apart for God. You catch that? It's to be set apart for God. And when we're living for God, and we talked about this last week, that we were created through him and for him. And when we truly live for him and we live out the purpose by which we've been created for, that's when you're gonna experience the abundant, joyful, satisfying life. It's only gonna come through the giver of life. It's not gonna be found anywhere else. So it's being holy, set apart for God, and then to be blameless. Now that does sound like a bit of a stretch. You look at your life and you go, man, don't look at my, my record because, man, I've been far from blameless. But blamelessness doesn't speak of, uh, of flawlessness. It speaks of that which is without blemish or, or defect. See, the animal sacrifices come to mind with this language, how they're to present an animal without blemish or defect. But here's the thing. Thankfully, we're seen as spotless. We're without blemish as a result of Jesus cleansing us and washing us clean. And then to be above reproach means that we're beyond criticism or accusation. It means that you're not living in a way where somebody can say, well, that doesn't line up. That doesn't, that doesn't resemble the life of Christ or what we see in the word. There's an accusation. Against, and here's the thing. Again, we, we might stumble and make mistakes, but when we repent, we remove those accusations against us. But notice something here. Again, this is the work that Jesus is doing for you. He's the one that's presenting us, us this way. We have an accuser that accuses us day and night before the Father, Satan. That's that, that very name of Satan is the accuser. He's accusing us. He's looking to drag us down. He's looking to point out all of our faults. But in Christ, we're made blameless. We're above reproach. And this is not so much an issue of our personal conduct, but rather our position in Christ. Jude 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. This is the work that we receive in and through Jesus. Now, that's wonderful news, but here's something now that as we move in the next verse that a lot of people love to say, man, I'd love this to be maybe removed from Scripture. I, I, w- I would love to not have this in the Bible because this now kind of puts some onus on us. Notice what we see here in verse 24. Nope, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. See, there's a lot of people that would love to say, oh, I remember giving my life to Jesus back at youth camp. I was 13 years old. Man, that was, that was great. Or I, I came forward at a Billy Graham crusade and I dedicated my life to the Lord. I'm saved. I'm good. I'm going to heaven. But in many of those people, there's not been a continuance in the faith. There's not been an abiding faith. They've wandered without a dependency on and trust in Jesus. Paul makes very clear, listen, this is the reality. Verse 22 is the reality for you if indeed you continue in the faith. See, our faith is not a one-time profession. As much as you might have had a good experience at a crusade or at a camp, it's not a one-time profession for us. There's to be an ongoing and daily attitude in which we are abiding in and trusting Jesus 
to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach. Ray Stedman says this. He says, it's <coughs> continuing that is the proof of reality. Many people start out the Christian life filled with joy because they found a new sensation, but it does not last. Somewhere along the line, it fades. That's kind of like the illustration of the parable of the sower and the seed, isn't it, that we see. Finally, they set it all aside and go back to the way they once were. That is a sign that there was never real faith at the beginning. It is continuance that proves reality. Someone once well said, if your faith fizzles before you finish, it is because it was faulty from the first. Have you put your trust in Jesus? Because your trust in Jesus is not a one-time thing where you say, okay, I've attached Jesus to my life, now I can just go on living it how I want. It's continuing in him, it's abiding in him, it's daily recognizing your need for Jesus and his grace. It's not that you need to be resaved every day. Your salvation is complete in him, but you need to remain in him. Now Paul isn't necessarily throwing this out to the Church of Colossus as a accusation against them, but more so it's a confidence in them that they are doing this. They're ones that haven't moved away, haven't faded off, haven't drifted. They've continued on in the Lord. There's a lot of people, even when Jesus was here on the earth, that came to him for what they might benefit from him, but then drifted. John chapter six illustrates that well for us. There were many people that were coming because there's the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, the, the loaves and the fish that spread out upon the multitude. And everybody's going, man, this is awesome. We gotta stick with Jesus because man, when we stick with Jesus, we're gonna have all of our needs met. It's gonna be great. And they start following him. But then he keeps sharing with them. You know, unless you eat of my flesh, not just his physical bread, but unless you eat of my flesh, you have no part with me. And this began to be a hard thing for people to comprehend and understand. And many people began to wander off. They began to pull away. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples there in John 6, verse 67. He said to the 12, do you also want to go away? Remember what Simon Peter answered. He didn't get a lot of things right, but some things he got right, and he got this one really right. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I love that. Where else would we go? Where else can we go? Lord, not only do you feed us physically, but more importantly, you feed our soul. You're the one by which we have eternal life. There's no other options for that. It's only found in Jesus Christ. And these disciples knew full well that there's nowhere else that we can go that we're gonna find what we have in you. And sadly, there are people that have once maybe made a profession of Christ, but then have drifted away and said, well, that was good for then, but I'm gonna try some other things now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try some other options for my life. And it's only left them dry and desolate. It's only in Jesus that we have eternal life. We need to be careful that, like what Paul is saying there in verse 23, that we're grounded and steadfast, that we don't let anything pull us away, that we don't let anything cause us to drift. You know, I, I love, um, my family and I love surfing. Whenever we're able to 
go away and travel somewhere, take a vacation. It's like, we want to find a place that has a beach with waves, and then I'm in my happy spot, right? And so I'd love to get out there. And there's been times I've been surfing down in, in California beaches, and you paddle out there, you get out to the break, and you're sitting on your board just enjoying the scenery and waiting for some rides, and, and you take some rides, and then you, you come back in, and you get back to the beach where you thought you entered in, and you're like, where's my towel? Where's my stuff? My bag is gone. Somebody stole my stuff. And you fail to realize that as you've been sitting out in the water, the undercurrents has just drifted you and pulled you aside. That's why it's so important, you know, and, and, and you have all the lifeguard towers, they look the same, but they've all got numbers on them, and it's important that you look at that lifeguard tower and you see what number you entered in at, and you keep your eyes on that while you're out in the water to know, man, I gotta be careful that I'm not drifting away, that I'm keeping myself centered here with this lifeguard tower that I know I'm coming right back in where I, I came out. And there's a lot of people that get their eyes off of Christ and they get their eyes on other things and they're failing to realize that they're drifting in that current of culture, getting pulled away from the Lord and onto other things that have caused them to kind of remove that faith in the Lord to where their trust gets put onto other, other things. Hebrews chapter two, verse one and three says, therefore we must give more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You know, Paul is writing to a group of people there who were being persecuted and pulled away to, to come back to the former things and leave Jesus, and they're getting pulled. Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews says, how shall we escape, how, how shall we recover if we neglect so great a salvation? It's only, what he's saying is, it's only through Jesus. Your salvation is not gonna be found by sacrifices at the temple, by following the, the Mosaic uh, law. It's not gonna be found through any of those religious means. It's found in Jesus. How are you going to recover if you neglect so great a salvation? Be careful that you remain steadfast, that you do not drift away. You don't get pulled into other things. Many people are being pushed along by the things of this world, and we need to be anchored. And that anchor is our hope in the Lord. That's what, what Paul is saying, that you are not moved away. Verse 23, notice that. Are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. The author of Hebrews again would say in Hebrews 6.19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. You see, when we're anchored in hope and faith in Jesus, we're not gonna get uprooted. We're not gonna get pulled along by the currents like that barge at Stanley Park here. We need to learn to endure and persevere. This life isn't always going to be easy and it will test you in your walk with the Lord. But when you're anchored in hope, you're not gonna be moved when things are coming against you. Notice what, what Paul says here. Notice how he responds in verse 24. I love this. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. How could Paul rejoice? How could Paul experience an attitude like this? 
I think first of all, because he understood that this wasn't an indication of God's absence in his life, but rather this was indicating that God was continuing to work in his life and through his life, and that God oftentimes will work even greater through adversity and through difficulty. Even in the midst of our sufferings, God is doing a work, and Paul's recognizing that full well while he's writing this from jail. He's in prison, and yet he's realizing that God is doing an incredible work even in the midst of him being in prison. And he's rejoicing, why? Because he's living for the glory of God. And if he's seeing God doing an effectual work in him and through him, even in the midst of suffering, he can rejoice. That's the attitude to have. And he knew that suffering, trials, was doing a further work in us. James chapter one, verse two to four, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Paul writes essentially the same thing in Romans chapter five, verse three to five, when he says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's amazing. Paul recognize that suffering may start there but it's producing greater things in us that cause us to become perfect and complete lacking nothing now what does paul mean when he says in verse 24 which sounds a little bit like where's paul going with this when he says and to fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of christ you read that there in verse 24 and you're like, oh, what is Paul trying to say? Is he trying to say that Christ's suffering wasn't enough? That maybe his death perhaps didn't atone for us fully? Catholic Church likes to kind of promote the idea that, you know, when you die and you go to purgatory, and you continue to suffer until you suffer enough to where you can then, you know, move on to, to paradise. This is not what Paul is, is, is propagating or, or, or promoting here at all. What Paul is, is saying, and, and remember the whole book of Colossians has been written to reveal the supremacy of Christ, the all-sufficiency of Christ that we're complete in him. Now, though this is one of the more debated verses of the Bible, it's seen that Paul is simply referencing that as Christ's body suffered while he was here on earth, that now he continues to suffer through the body of Christ, which is the church. And again, it's not to say that, that he suffers physically today but rather he suffers in empathy with his church today as the church goes through suffering as the church goes through trials remember when paul before he came to know christ he's he's out there looking at the church looking at christians as like a real problem these guys are really you know going against god and i gotta stop them this is paul's attitude so he's on his way to damascus to persecute the church to put people in prison and perhaps even kill them if if necessary but on his way to damascus what happens the lord confronts him shows up stops him and what does the lord say to paul there in acts chapter 9 he says saul saul why are you persecuting me paul didn't think he was persecuting the lord he thought he was doing god a favor by getting rid of these christians but jesus says Saul, what are you doing to them you're doing it unto me. Why are you persecuting me? And Paul now understands that as the body of Christ 
as representatives of the Lord, we're gonna go through difficulty. As the world hated Jesus, so the world is gonna hate the church. But see what Paul is saying here, to fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, Paul is showing that he's, he's glad that he can endure some of that suffering and make up for what might be lacking elsewhere, that he's the one that can bear some of this, perhaps so that he can spare others from that same kind of suffering. But he also understands the great privilege of suffering for the sake of Christ. Remember the apostles in Acts chapter five, after they were beaten by the officials, they left there excited, worshiping, praising God that they were counted worthy of suffering shame for Jesus Christ. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer shame. That's the attitude that many apostles had. It's the attitude that Paul had here. And it's for this reason, he says, verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, Paul became a minister according to that calling and, and stewardship of God. That word stewardship just means dispensation or administration. So kind of in the economy of God, Paul was called for such a time as this here now to share and declare this great mystery. Now remember, again, here's Paul now kind of refuting another argument that the Gnostic thinkers were saying that in order to be right with God, in order to be saved, you need to have a secret knowledge. You need to, through, you know, secret revelation and, and unlocking certain passcodes, move along that line of emanations until you eventually reach God. But it's only for the elite few, the intellectually superior that had this great revelation and could unlock this mystery. But now Paul comes and he says, let me explain to you what the mystery of God really is. Because it's actually not a, a mystery. We think of that word mystery as like something that we have to figure out. It's not what biblically that word ministry means. Biblically, the word ministry, mystery simply means something that was once concealed in the Old Testament, but now has been revealed in and through Jesus Christ. We looked at that a lot when we went through the book of Ephesians. Paul talked a lot about that mystery of God. And the mystery essentially was that God was gonna be bringing together both Jews and Gentiles and creating a new people, the church, the body of Christ out of them, where God was gonna work in and through them collectively as one group, both Jew and Gentile. An amazing thing that God was doing. That was the mystery. But now Paul adds to that and he begins to say that this mystery to them, verse 27, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So not only was God gonna be saving people together, bringing them together as one body, the, the, the church, but now he says, he's not just gonna bring you together, he's gonna fill you. You're gonna see Christ now living in you, working through you, empowering you. Christ is gonna be in you and that becomes our hope of glory. It's his life in you. It's the only way by which we can live this life. See, all other religions tell you, you know, be a good person. Do good works. Be kind. But no other religion can give you the power to do that. We still get stumbled by our own sinful humanity. We can put on an act really well but this isn't something that comes naturally for us. And we know the religion gives you the power to do it. But now Christianity comes along and says, this is gonna be Christ in you. 
It's going to work in you and through you and enable you. This is what Paul is getting at here. It's not about imitation. Do this, follow that. It's about impartation, Christ being in you. And notice Paul is experiencing that work of Christ in him and empowering him. He says in verse 28, him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. So Paul ends this section here now. It's his working in me that works mightily. Paul saw that he had a great role and privilege of preaching Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's not about some secret knowledge. It's not about some kind of, you know, path to follow uh, that was, you know, some religious duty. It's Jesus. He's our hope of glory. It's him in us that does this work. It's him perfecting us. That's what Paul says when, when we want to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Again, not implying flawlessness. It just speaks of maturity. Paul wanted those around him, those he had the privilege to teach, to be mature and to grow up in Christ. And notice what he says here. It's through the word of God that that's going to happen. It's in teaching the word of God that's going to lead all people to maturity. That's why we want to take time every Sunday just to open up scripture, teach the word, because it's the word that's going to mature us and grow us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, all scriptures given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Gnostics again thought you can only be complete by secret knowledge. Paul shows, no, it comes through the word of God. It's through teaching Christ. And the word of God is all about Jesus Christ. When we get in the word of God, we see the life of Jesus and we see his life at work in us. And that's what grows us and matures us. Paul saw the absolute necessity of this. He, he knew that it wouldn't always be easy. It was labor, he says. Paul's been through beatings, persecutions. He's been through shipwrecks. Second Corinthians 11, read that and it'll make your life feel so much more rosier and comfor comfortable. Imprisonments, I mean, the list goes on. But would we still be faithful like Paul after any of those? Let's take one of those things on the list that he gives of the things he's been through. Would we continue on? Would we have a, a continuing faith, persevering in the Lord? Would we be steadfast? Would we be immovable? Do we have that hope as an anchor of our soul in the midst of these things? Paul saw that it was the Lord working in him, energizing him, and strengthening him to carry out this most wonderful work. Christ was the beginning and the end of this message here. As George Whitefield said, other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. And Paul is laying it out here, saying this is what is true. This is what is real. And we pray that this will be your hope and that you'll be steadfast and unshakable unmovable that you will continue on in the faith trusting the lord it's all that we've got but yet he's all that we need all right let's pray worship team would you come up and close us in a song lord we thank you for this truth of your word that we can take time just to share it read it go through it lord and we thank you for god all that you're doing in us thank you that god we're not 
just trying to imitate something, Lord, we have that impartation, Christ in us, the very hope of our glory. God, though the world around might be chaotic and there's hopelessness that abounds, I pray that we might live without hope in you and that we might share that with others. We might be ministers of reconciliation. You've given us that truth and reality, so may we share it with others too, Lord. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.